to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. Amen. All right, well, we're there in the Gospel of Luke, of course, Luke chapter number 12. And we are going through a series called Journey with Jesus, and it is a verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of Luke. We're making our way uh, through this book, and this morning we find ourselves here in Luke chapter 12 and uh, verse 35. And in this passage of Scripture, from verses 35 through 59, the Lord Jesus Christ teaches on the subject of the end times and of His second coming. And oftentimes I'm uh, requested or I'm asked or told that I should preach on uh, the end times and, 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 on, and, and on end times prophecy. And, and I do a lot of teaching on the end times. In fact, over the years I've done so much teaching on the end times that I'm just not, it's not necessarily one of the subjects that I uh, want to talk about uh, all the time. But I realize that it's something that intrigues people. And though I don't do it a lot, or haven't done it a lot lately, uh, we're doing it this morning. And we're looking at this uh, passage of Scripture the Lord is teaching on end times. And we've got a lot of material to cover. We're going to cover all of the verses from verse 35 through 59. And uh, I'll give you a lot in regards to this. So I would encourage you to move quickly and uh, take notes if you're able to. And let me just kind of help you out with what we're going to look at. I've, I've outlined this passage of Scripture under four headings under four points, and if you want to maybe jot these down or just be ready, uh, be ready for this. We're going to look at G- Jesus' teaching on the second coming and on end times, and uh, here are the headings that I've divided them into. The first is that of waiting. We'll cover that in verses 35 through 37. Then that of watching. We'll cover that in verses 38 through 40. That of working in verses 41 through 48, and then that of withstanding in verses 49 through 53. You notice that that does not get us to the end of the passage, but we'll cover verses 54 through 59 in the conclusion. So I'd encourage you to take notes, and on the back of your course of the week, there's a place for you to write down some things, and we'll just jump right into it here in verse 35. And point number one is this, that we should be waiting till Jesus comes. This is what Jesus teaches on the subject, that we should be waiting till Jesus comes, verses 35 through 37. Now, when the Bible when, when the, the, the idea of waiting is used in Scripture, it is not necessarily this idea of sitting around doing nothing, but it is the idea of sitting around and being ready, being ready for the coming of the Lord. You're there in Luke chapter 12. If you look at verse 35, notice how Jesus begins. He says, Let your loins be girded, out, girded about and your lights burning. Now, that, that phrase already, and again, as we go through this, this passage and as you read it, it probably was very clear to you that it was a passage about end times prophecy. But even just that first verse is already an, an, an allusion or alluding us to a passage of Scripture dealing with end times. And Jesus says, look, I'm going to speak to you on the subject of end times, but let me start by saying this. Let your loins be girded. Let your loins be girded and your lights burning. Now that, that phrase, loins be girded, might be an odd phrase for you if you're not familiar with it in Scripture. And that, that phrase is found all throughout the Bible. Gird up thy loins, gird up your loins, loins girded, let thy loins be girded. And the meaning of that phrase, what it means is to prepare oneself for action. The phrase originally alluded to the tucking up of the traditional long robe into a belt or into a girdle so that it would not hamper physical activity. Men during this time would wear coats, 
like the coat I'm wearing this morning, but they would be longer coats uh, and uh, maybe something we might consider like a robe. And when they were getting ready to go work in the field or if they were getting ready to go out into battle, they were getting ready to do some sort of a physical activity, they would often take those uh, long portions of that robe, they would take that long robe and they would tuck it into their belt or tuck it into their girdle. And so that phrase to gird up your loins or to uh, gird up, to, to have your loins girded is, it became a phrase associated with the idea of getting ready. If somebody told you, hey, gird up your loins, they were telling you, get, get ready because we're going to start, we're going to go running, you know, we're going to go into battle, we're going to go work, we're going to go do something. And Jesus says, let your loins be girded. And the idea for the first century here would have been this idea of getting ready, being prepared, being ready. And then he says this, and your lights burning. He says, let your loins be girded about and your lights burning. I want you to notice the context, verse 36. And ye yourselves like unto men that, and here's our word, wait. See that word wait? You'll notice that this word wait is used throughout the Bible. In these end times passages, it's used throughout Scripture. He says, liken unto men that wait for their Lord. So he said, you are to be like servants who are waiting or that wait for their Lord. Notice, when he, their Lord, will return from the wedding. And I also want you to notice this, that all throughout the Bible you'll find that this illustration of weddings, a bridegroom, a bride, are used throughout scriptures in these end times uh, uh, passages. So he says, I want you to be like unto men that wait for their Lord when he will return from the wedding, that when he cometh and knocketh, they may open unto him immediately. And the idea is this, that the Lord of the house, the, the heir, uh, maybe a young man after his father had died, would then leave that house, would leave those servants, and he would go and get married, and then he would return uh, with the bride, and he would return in order to establish his home there. And he said, you are like the servants that are waiting for that return for him that will return from the wedding. Now, all of this is alluding to a very well-known uh, a passage and parable dealing with end times. Let me just give it to you and show it to you real quickly. Keep your place there in Luke chapter 12. That's our text for this morning. But go back with me to the gospel of Matthew, if you would. Matthew chapter 25, and we'll begin at verse number one. If you're there in Luke, just go backwards past the book of Mark into the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 25, and look at verse number one. He says, let your loins be girded about, referring to being ready, and let your lights burn, uh, he said, let your lights burning, and then he connects that of let your lights be burning in regards to waiting for a wedding. And this is all, of course, a cross-reference when we talk about end times to this very famous parable in Matthew 25 and verse 1 regarding the ten virgins. In Matthew 25 and verse 1, Jesus gave a parable about ten virgins, and he speaks uh, uh, about that parable in the context or to teach us regarding end times. Notice what it says there, Matthew 25, verse 1. Then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened unto ten virgins, which took their lamps. Remember he said in Luke 20, uh, 12, 35, let your lights, uh, uh, having your lights burning. He said these ten virgins, they took their lamps and went forth to meet. Notice who they went forth to meet, the bridegroom. Again, 
always these connections with the bridegroom, the bride, the wedding, a wedding party. Uh, there's this theme, this uh, symbolism of weddings in regards to the rapture and the end times. And I don't have time to show you all of them, but if you want to just jot this down for your own records, you know, one of the, the, the best examples of this is in Matthew 22, verses 1 through 14, the parable of the wedding feast where the Lord sends his laborers out to invite people to a wedding uh, feast, to a wedding party. Remember, they would not come. So then he sends them out by the highways and hedges and to compel them to come in. Uh, and, and that is another parable that alludes this idea of a wedding and a bridegroom. So I want you to notice the, these ten virgins. They were uh, to be ready. They, were to, uh, they went out to meet the bridegroom. Look at verse 2. And five of them were wise. Five of them were wise. In this parable, these five wise virgins represent believers or people that are saved. Notice, and five were foolish. These would be people that are not saved. And specifically, uh, these would be false believers, people that are not pretending to be saved, pretending to be believers, but they're actually not. Verse 3, they that were foolish took their lamps, but notice, and took no oil. And again, I'm not necessarily preaching on this parable this morning, uh, so I'll just give some of this to you, and you can just uh, study this out on your own if you like. But all throughout the, the Bible, the uh, oil is used as a representation of the Holy Spirit, and oil is a picture of the Holy Spirit. And here we have these uh, five, uh, these ten virgins that went out with their lamps, and of course we know in the first century they did not have batteries, they did not have electricity. Uh, what they would often use as a source for fuel in order to light their lamps would be oil. They would have these oil lamps that would be uh, lit with oil. And we're told that these foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. What does that mean? They took the lamps. Now remember again, Jesus taught that ye are the light of the world, that we as Christians represent uh, the light. So these lamps are a representation of this outward exterior of Christianity. These, ten, these five foolish virgins, they had the lamps. They had the outward exterior uh, uh, of what you might consider or think they must be a Christian. But when you look inside, there's no oil. Notice verse again there, verse 3. They that were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. Verse 4. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps while the bridegroom tarried. The word tarried means while he lingered, while he delayed, while they were waiting for him. They all slumbered and slept. And at midnight there was a cry. The word cry means to shout or yell. We use the word cry like if tears are coming out, but in your King James Bible, the word for that is weep. When you see the word cry, it is in reference to, to, to a shout. And at midnight, there was a shout. That should remind you, if you're familiar with that time's uh, passages, of the rapture. The Lord Jesus Christ will come with a shout. And at midnight, there was a cry made. Behold, the bridegroom cometh. Go ye out to meet him. And of course, we know the bridegroom is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one represented here. Verse 7. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. They clipped or cut or removed from their lamps, prepared their lamps. Verse 8. And the foolish said unto the wise, Give us of your oil, for our lamps are gone out. But the wise answered, saying, Not so, lest there be not enough for us and you, uh, but go ye rather to them that sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and they were ready, uh, and they that were ready, and, and, and really that is the key to this parable there in verse 10. And they that were ready went in with him to the marriage, and the door was shut. 
Afterwards came also the other virgin saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. And again, if you're familiar with Scripture, that should call out to you. A very famous passage of Scripture with the Lord Jesus Christ, that in that day, on the day of judgment, many will say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in thy name? Did we not cast out devils and in thy name do many wonderful works? And I shall say to them, depart from me, ye workers of, in- of iniquity, I never knew you. That is a reference here, Matthew 25, 11. Afterward came also the virgin, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Verily I say unto you, I know you not. Watch therefore, for ye know neither the day nor the hour wherein the Son of Man cometh. And when it comes to parables, you need to understand that obviously, as we've talked about this before, a parable is an uh, a earthly story with a spiritual or a heavenly application. It's simply an illustration, it's symbolism to teach us something. And I think sometimes people can go too deep into these parables and try to make every little thing mean something and they can get all wound up and come out preaching heresy. And I would just say this, look, when it comes to parables, understand just the meaning, the simple application. If Jesus tells you this means this, then that means that. Otherwise, be careful about looking uh, too deep into it. But I would just say this, when you look at this parable of the ten virgins, the applications should be clear and should be simple to understand. You say, what is the application? It is this. If you're not ready for the Lord's return, you need to get ready. Say, what does that mean? That means you need to get saved. It's not enough to have a lamp. You got to have the Holy Spirit. You got to have the oil in that lamp. And the application is this. If you're not ready when the Lord returns, no one can help you. No one else can give you of their oil. You're not going to stand at the great white throne and say, well, my grandmother was saved. No, you need oil. Well, my, my parents were saved. No, you need oil. You need oil in the lamp. And you better be ready when the Lord comes because once He comes, hey, no one can help you. No one can give you of their oil. So we see that the lesson here, go back to Luke chapter 12, is that to be ready. Let your loins be girded about and your lights burning. And ye yourselves like unto men that wait for their Lord when He will return from the wedding that when he cometh and knocketh, they may open unto him immediately. You don't want to be left. You don't want to say, you know, asking him to open up. He will say, depart from me. I never knew you. You want to be ready on that day. You say, what if I don't live for the rapture? Well, here's the thing. Whether you, whether you live till the rapture or whether you die, the Bible says, and, that is, and as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment, whether you live to the rapture or not, either way, all of us will be judged by God and you want to be ready for that judgment day. <clears throat> Excuse me, my voice is <clears throat> cutting out. I spoke for seven hours on Friday at our soul winning seminar and I just, you know, you may not, you may not think it's work, but it's work. I was, uh, I was surprised how tired I was afterwards. I told my wife, I felt like a train hit me. And last time I'd done a soul winning seminar was seven years ago uh, and, and the seven years have taken their toll, I'll tell you that. <laughs> Luke chapter 12, look at verse 36. The application is be ready. Be ready for the coming of the Lord. You say, what if I don't live till the coming of the Lord? Be ready for the day you meet the Lord. Be ready for the day of judgment. Make sure you have the oil in your lamps. Lamps without oil do you no good. And no one can give you of their oil on that day. But I want you to notice, not only is the lesson to be ready, but the lesson is to be expectant. Throughout the Bible, you'll notice that the word hope is used about the coming of the Lord. He is our blessed hope. Our King James Bible does not use the word hope in the same way that you and I use the word hope. When you and I use the word hope, we use the word hope in the sense of something we're not sure of. 
We'll say, do you think that this is going to happen? Do you think that the economy is going to recover? Do you think that inflation is going to go down? And people say, well, I, I hope so. And what you mean by that is, I, I, I would like that to happen, but I'm not sure if that's going to happen. In your King James Bible, that is not the way the word hope is used. The word hope is not used as though uh, there's something that you'd like to happen, but you're not sure if it will happen. The word hope is used as something that you know will happen. The coming of our Lord is our blessed hope. We don't hope He's coming. We know He's coming. We are expecting to the fact that He is coming. The idea is that we should be expectant of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it may not happen in our lifetime. It may happen in our lifetime. But we should realize it and, 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 and have that hope and be expectant. Notice there in verse 36. And ye yourselves, like unto men that wait for the Lord when he will return from the wedding, that when he cometh and knocketh, they may open unto him immediately. Verse 7, Blessed are those servants whom the Lord, when he cometh, shall find watching. Verily I say unto you, that he shall gird himself and make them to sit down to meet and will come forth and serve them. I, I don't want you to miss that. Luke 12, 37, in my opinion, is one of the most interesting verses in the Bible when it comes to end times prophecy. And it's not usually something that we emphasize when we talk about end times. I don't know that it's something that we've ever covered in a documentary or in, in a video or something like that. But I think it's an interesting thing, especially since we're here in Luke 12, to consider. The Bible says that when the Lord returns, verse 37, blessed are those servants when, whom the Lord, when he cometh, shall find watching. This is, of course, referring to the rapture, talking about those that are saved and they're watching and they're waiting for the Lord Jesus Christ. Verily I say unto you that he, who's the he there? That's the Lord, that's Jesus, shall gird himself and make them, the servants, to sit down to meet. The word meet is a reference to food. To sit down to eat. And he, the Lord, will come forth and serve them. You know, the Bible teaches that after the rapture, there is going to be a celebration in which the Lord Jesus Christ actually girds himself and he serves us. Isn't that interesting? Keep your place there in Luke chapter 12. Go to Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19. We find a symbolism of this or a foreshadowing of this in John 13, I don't have time to take you there. You can jot this down for your own notes. And I realize that this morning's sermon might feel more like a Bible study, and, and uh, it, that's really what it is. John 13, for your own notes, verses 4 and 5, right before the Lord Jesus Christ went to the cross, the Bible tells us that he laid aside his garment, he took a towel and girded himself, and he began to wash the disciples' feet. Do you remember that story? And Peter, Peter tells him, don't wash my feet. And Jesus said, if I don't wash your feet, you're, not, you're none of mine. And then, you know, Peter, you know, true to form, goes from don't wash my feet to give me a sponge bath, you know. And, and, and Jesus says, look, your feet's enough, okay. And, um, of course, we've got that famous story where Jesus uh, laid aside, the Bible tells us he laid aside his garment, took a towel, girded himself, and began to wash the disciples' feet. And the Bible tells us that something similar is going to happen after the rapture, you say, what is that called or what, what, what is that known as? And that is known as the marriage. <clears throat> See, the, 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 the feast of the parable, uh, the, the parable of the feast of the marriage, where the servants went out and invited people to the marriage. And remember, they gave all these excuses why they couldn't come, referring to the nation of Israel. The Bible says that he came into his own, his own received him not. And then they decided to go out into the highways and hedges and they turned uh, to the Gentiles and they began to invite them into this wedding. 
after the rapture, there really literally is going to be some sort of a celebration known as the marriage of the Lamb. Revelation 9, and I'm not going to pretend that I know all the details about this or understand all of this, because I don't, and neither do you. But the Bible tells us in Revelation 19.7, let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to Him. Revelation 19.7, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and His wife hath made herself ready. We know from Ephesians that, uh, that the believers that collectively join as a church are the bride of Christ. And today here on earth, we have individual local churches. But one day after the rapture, we will be the general assembly, the entire church for the first time. Today, please understand this, there's no such thing as a universal church. People like to talk about the universal church and the believers that make up a church. Look, a church, the word church literally means a congregation, a local assembly. There's Verity Baptist Church. There's 211 people here this morning making up this congregation of Verity Baptist Church. But there's no universal church. But one day after the rapture, when all believers have been resurrected, when uh, we have been uh, given our glorified bodies and we're all united in heaven, then the church, the bride of Christ, will celebrate with the bridegroom at the marriage supper of the Lamb. You say, what's going to happen? I don't know necessarily, I don't have uh, all of the details, but what I can tell you is this, that Jesus said in Luke 12, 37, that he shall gird himself and make them to sit down to me and will come forth and serve them. We're going to have a meal with the Lord Jesus Christ. Come and dine with the Lord Jesus Christ. Revelation 19 and verse 8, And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen. Notice, clean and white. She's given white robes. Who's given white robes? Believers. After the rapture. For the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. Believers, after the rapture, I'll show you a verse here in a minute, are going to be given white robes that represent the righteousness of the saints. Though their sins be as scarlet, I will wash them white as snow, is what Isaiah says. They're going to be given white robes. We will be given white robes for the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. Verse 9, And he saith unto me, Right, blessed are they which are called unto, notice, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he shall say unto me, These are the true sayings of God. Skip back, go, go back to Revelation chapter 7. Let me just show you something about these white robes. Revelation chapter 7. And by the way, let me just say this. Don't confuse this because in Revelation 19, there's another feast that goes on as well. And we see this both at the beginning of the millennial reign and at the end of the millennial reign. And this is after the battle of Armageddon when the Lord Jesus Christ returns in a white horse. And after he wins that battle, the fowls of the air eat all of the corpses of the people that Jesus killed with the sword of his mouth. That is also a feast that takes place, and, and that is a separate feast from this feast. This is a, 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 a celebration between the Lord Jesus Christ and believers, and they are given white robes. Notice Revelation chapter 7 and verse 9. Revelation 7, 9 is a verse about the rapture. I don't have time to prove that to you. You can study it and read it in its context. It's very clear it's the rapture. I mean, just the verse itself proves to you that it's a rapture. It can't be anything else. Revelation 7, 9. John says, after this I beheld, and lo, a great multitude, which no man could number. Notice, of all nations and kindreds and peoples and tongues stood before the throne. You say, what is that? That's the rapture. 
A great multitude shows up in heaven before the throne. No one can number them. And they're from every nation and kindred and people and tongues stood before the throne and before the Lamb. Notice, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands. At the rapture, we're told in Revelation 6 that we're given white robes. This seems to indicate that we will, it has to do with this marriage supper of the Lamb. Again, if you go to that parable, the parable of the feast of the wedding. Remember in the parable, there was a man that had on the wrong garment. And he was thrown out into outer darkness because it is the righteousness of the saints that will be in the white robes. And this is why, you know, all of this has to do with the wedding of uh, the marriage supper of the Lamb, the wedding of the bride and the, uh, the bridegroom that's coming. Uh, but this is all symbolism in regards to how we traditionally do weddings today. There's a reason why the, 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 the bride dresses in a white dress to symbolize the bride of Christ and white righteous, of course, the white dress also symbolizes purity and all those things. But this is, these are things that symbolize and that we've brought into our culture uh, in, regarding weddings because this is what the Lord Jesus Christ teaches on the subject of weddings and the end times. Now, now go, go back to Luke chapter 12. So we saw, number one, that we should be waiting till Jesus comes. What does that mean? That means be ready. You need to be ready and you need to be expectant. Have the hope. The marriage supper lamp. Look forward to that day when the Lord Jesus Christ will serve you. You say, how do I prepare for the Lord to serve us? Here's how you prepare. You say, I don't want, the, you know, people like to take, like Peter, this hyper-spiritual approach and say, I don't want Jesus to serve me. Look, Jesus is serving you. He will serve us as a way of showing his gratitude for the work that we've done. So you say, well, well, how do I prepare for Jesus to serve me? Here's how you prepare for Jesus to serve you. You serve him. Amen. See, when, here's what I want. I want to get to that marriage supper lamb, and when the Lord Jesus Christ, I don't know how it's all going to work, if it looks anything like when he washed the disciples' feet, when he gets to me, I want him to be able to say, thank you. Thank you for uh, being a faithful pastor, and thank you for teaching people how to be a soul winner. Thank you. I want to honor you uh, uh, with, with, by serving you and, and, and show you that I appreciate. You know, have something for the Lord Jesus Christ to thank you for to make it worth it. Because maybe he'll get to you and be like, well, I'm not to skip you because you didn't do anything. <laughs> Thanks for being a lazy bum. I died on the cross for your sins. Welcome to heaven. Next, you know, I don't know. <laughs> you say, how do I prepare for the Lord serving us at the, great, uh, at, the, at, the, at the marriage supper of the Lamb? Here's how you prepare. You serve Him. You serve Him. So we should be waiting. But I want you to notice, secondly, this morning, Luke 12, verse 38, not only should we be waiting, but we should be watching watching. We should be waiting till Jesus comes, verses 35 to 37, and then we should be watching till Jesus comes, verses 38 through 40. Now, the word watch is not exactly the same definition as what we would consider why. If I told somebody to watch something, I'm talking about open physically your eyes and look at something. Now, that is closely related to the biblical definition of watch, but the, word, the biblical definition of the word watch is just a little different. I want you to understand it. When you, if you understand this, it'll help you understand all sorts of uh, end times prophecy passages. Luke 12, 38. And if he shall come in the second watch. See the word watch there? See, the, the word watch in our King James Bible means to be awake. The, the night would be divided into different watches. The Bible says in verse 38, and if he shall come in the second watch or come in the third watch, 
Notice, they didn't know when the Lord was coming. He might come in the second watch. He might come in the third watch. The night, the 12 hours that were referred to as the night, were divided into these four different uh, uh, sections of three hours each, and each one was a different watch. There was the first watch of the night, the second watch of the night, the third watch of the night, the fourth watch of the night. And this is something that militaries would often use. Even today, if you have guards that are supposed to stand, uh, stay up all night and guard while everybody else is asleep, you might have guards on a rotation where one is relieved. They might you know, be up for the second watch of the night, and then another guard comes and takes their place, and they're up the third watch of the night. That's what's being referred to here. And a watch, or to watch, or watching, means to be awake. And if he shall come in the second watch, or come in the third watch, and find them so, find them what? Find them watching. Find them awake. Blessed are those servants. Look at verse 39. And this know that if the good man of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched. He says, look, if the good man of the house had known what time the thief would come, he would have stayed awake. He would have watched. Isn't that true? I mean, if somebody sent you a text message saying, hey, I'm going to break into your house at 1 a.m. So what are you going to do? Go to bed? No, I'm going to be at the front door with my gun. Somebody tells me, hey, I'm coming at this time into your house. And then Jesus says, look, if the good man of the house had known the hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not have suffered his house to be broken through. Verse 40, be ye therefore ready also, for the Son of Man cometh at an hour when ye think not. Now, I'd like you to, I'd like you to go with me, if you would, to the book of 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. In the New Testament, you've got all the T-books. They're all clustered together. 1st, 2nd Thessalonians, 1st, 2nd Timothy, and Titus. Go to 1st Thessalonians, and I want to spend some time talking about this idea of the thief in the night. Because this is a concept that is taught about end times. The Lord Jesus Christ brings it up here in Luke 12, and then the Apostle Paul brings it up in 1st in, in Thessalonians. The Apostle John brings it up in the book of Revelation. And it's often a misunderstood thing. And today you've got uh, the, the, the average evangelical Christian believes in a doctrine called the pre-tribulation rapture. Which, by the way, just for sake of clarity, we do not believe that here at Verity Baptist Church. Say, so why don't you believe that? Because it's not in the Bible. You say, how do you know that? So stay tuned, I'm about to prove it to you. But they, they, they have this belief that Jesus could come at any time, at any moment. And, they'll, and you'll say, prove that, and they'll point to the thief in the night. Well, let me help you out with something. Does the thief in the night sound like a positive thing? Like, that's my blessed hope. What's your blessed hope? Someone's going to break into my house in the middle of the night. You say, is the thief of the night not referring to Jesus? It is referring to Jesus. But it's referring to Jesus in a negative way. You say, why? Because the thief of the night is not an application for believers it's an application for people that are not looking for his coming. That are not hoping for his coming. That are not interested in his coming. Let me prove it to you. 1 Thessalonians 4. Now, what I actually want to show you is 1 Thessalonians 5. But the context begins in 1 Thessalonians 4. If you remember, uh, I think it was last week, we talked about the fact 
that our Bible is divided into verses and chapters, but please understand that just because it's divided into verses and chapters, those verses and chapters, praise God, are there. They're there for a reason and for a purpose for us to be able to find passages quickly and be able to maneuver through the Bible, but they were not there in, in the original writings. And what I mean by that is when the Apostle Paul wrote the book of 1 Thessalonians, he didn't, he didn't finish 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 18. He said, okay, that's done. Moving on to chapter 5. He didn't do that. He's just writing. Someone else came by later and divided into chapters, and I think that's fine. I don't have a problem with that, but I just want you to understand, just because there's a chapter division then does not mean necessarily that the discussion or the context has ended. Now, sometimes it does. You say, how do you know? You read it and look at the context. If the chapter begins, if we're in Luke and the chapter begins, you know, with on another day, well, then, yeah, that's another day. But if it just continues, like we saw in Luke recently, in the meantime, then the day's still going. The conversation is still flowing. Does that make sense? Hopefully it makes sense. Hopefully you're awake. First Thessalonians 4, look at verse 16. Hopefully you're awake, you know, and watching, however you want to define that. First Thessalonians 4, verse 16. Notice, the Lord himself shall descend from heaven. You say, what is that? That's the second coming of Christ. There are two comings of the Lord Jesus Christ. The first, he already came to Bethlehem's manger. The first time he came as a lamb, the second time he's coming as a lion. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, right? The midnight cry, we saw that in Matthew 25. With the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God. That is not Donald Trump. <laughs> and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Pre-trippers like to make a big deal about the second coming and the rapture are two different events. Well, you know, where'd you get that from? Bible college. Well, Paul must have not gone to your Bible college because he just connected to the two. The Lord himself shall descend from heaven. And when the Lord, Jesus Christ, descends from heaven, you know what happens? The dead in Christ shall rise first. Verse 17. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them. So what is that a reference to? That's what we call the rapture. In the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. So look. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16, 17, and 18 are talking about the rapture. In case you want to argue with me, let me just let you know this. Nobody argues that. Pre-trib, post-trib, it doesn't matter what your position is. Everybody agrees that 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16, 17, and 18 are a reference to the rapture, period, end of story. It can't be anything else. The dead in Christ shall rise first, then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so shall we ever be with the Lord. That's the rapture. Amen. Now, in 1 Thessalonians 4, we're, giving the, we're given the description of the rapture, how it happens. How does it happen? The Lord himself shall descend, there shall be a shout, there's going to be a trump. The dead in Christ, saints who have died before the rapture, will rise first. Then we which are alive and remain, if we live to the rapture, or whoever, whatever believers live to the rapture, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that in that process, this mortal will put on immortality, this corruption will put on incorruption, will be given a new glorified body along with the saints which were dead, which were asleep. He says, comfort each other with these words, all right? Now, in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16, 17, and 18, he gives us a description of the rapture. Notice there's no timing to the rapture. He doesn't tell you when this is going to happen. He just tells you it's going to happen. And here's what it's going to look like. Here's what it's going ha- what it, to be like. 
Notice 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 1. Notice the very first word, but. See the word but there? That is a conjunction. You say, what's a conjunction? A conjunction is a word connecting two clauses or two sentences. This is what I mean by telling you the, the, the passage is not over. You don't, you don't begin, you know, a, a book with the word but. But what? It's connecting you to something else. What is 1 Thessalonians 5.1 connecting you to what we just read? 1 Thessalonians 4, 16, 17, 18. The Lord himself shall descend from heaven. The dead in Christ shall rise. We which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds. The description of the rapture, then he says in 1 Thessalonians 5.1, but of the times and the seasons, brethren, ye have no need that I write unto you. Now look, he says brethren, which means he's referring to believers, to Christians. And he says, look, I just talked about the rapture. He says, but of the times of the seasons, you don't need that I write that unto you. Now, why does Paul say that? Here's why Paul says it. Because Jesus has already answered the question. When it comes to the times and the seasons, Jesus already told us when it's going to happen. If you remember the very famous passage of Scripture, which we'll come to in our study of Luke, when the disciples asked Jesus, when shall these things be? Referring to the end times. And he says, let me tell you about the times and the seasons. And he gives that famous Olivet Discourse. In Luke 12, we're seeing him talk about the thief in the night. And Paul is saying, look, you don't need that I write this unto you. You're already aware of this, brethren. Look at verse 2. For yourselves know perfectly. I'm sorry, let me just look at something real quick, make sure I didn't skip something here. Verse 2. For yourselves know perfectly. The word perfectly means completely. You understand this perfectly. You understand this completely. That the day of the Lord, all right? Now, look, I don't have time. I'm not going to turn this into a mini-series on end times. I've done that. So you're going to have to study this out on your own if you'd like, if you're interested in this. But let me just say this. When you study this phrase, the day of the Lord, it's throughout the entire New Testament and Old Testament. It is always a reference to the coming day of God's wrath. It's a negative thing. It's like a thief in the night. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. The day of the Lord, the coming of God's wrath, is coming as a thief in the night. You say, well, I don't understand. Are we talking about the second coming of Christ, which is a good thing? The dead in Christ shall rise, and, and we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together? Or are we talking about the day of the Lord, which is a negative thing? When, the, when God begins to pour out his wrath. Well, here's what you need to understand. The day of Christ, which that phrase, the day of Christ, is used throughout the entire Bible in reference to the rapture. Like I said, I don't have time to show that to you. You have to study that out on your own. The day of the Lord is used throughout the entire Bible as a reference to the day of, uh, of God's wrath. Both days are referring to the same event. You say, but the day of Christ is a positive thing, and the day of the Lord is a negative thing. So how can they be the same? Well, it's the same day, whether it's positive or negative depends whether you have oil in your lamp or not. If you've got oil in your lamp, then it's a good day when the bridegroom comes. It's a good day when we're raptured together. It's a good day when we have the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's a good day when he girds himself and he serves us and he rewards us. That's a good day. When you don't have oil in your lamp, it's a bad day. It's like a thief in the night coming. Sudden destruction cometh. The wrath of God cometh. First Thessalonians 4.16, uh, excuse me, 5.2. Five, five, uh, five, 
1 Thessalonians 5, 2, For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord cometh as a thief in the night. Verse 3, For when they... Now I want you to notice, okay? Remember in verse 1 he says, But of the times and the seasons, brethren. Okay, so who's Paul speaking to? He's talking to the brethren. Then in verse 3 he says, For when they... Okay? The they is a different group. It's not the brethren. When he talked to the brethren, he referred to them as brethren. We're going to see that later on in this passage. Now he's talking to the brethren about a different group, and he's referring to them as they. Verse 3, For when they, not the brethren, in contrast to the brethren, mentioned in verse 1, you say, who are the they? The they, it is the unsaved people. For when they shall say, the, the, the people to whom the coming of the Lord is a negative thing. It's like a thief in the night. For when they shall say, what are they going to say? They're going to say peace and safety. Why are they going to say peace and safety? And again, I don't have time to go into all these details. But they're going to say peace and safety because there's coming a man by the name of the Antichrist who's going to unite the entire world under a one-world government and under a one-world religion, and he's going to promise peace. And Paul is telling us, when they shall say peace and safety then sudden destruction cometh upon them. What's the sudden destruction? It's the day of the Lord that's coming as a thief in the night. Sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. Say, so what is that a reference to, the, the, the travail uh, uh, upon a, a woman with child? What he's saying is, what he just said, is that they're not going to escape. Look, if you're a lady and you're expecting... When it's time to give birth, when that baby, when that baby's coming, you're not going to escape. You're going to, you just have to do it. <laughs> it has to happen. And, and that's what he's saying. They're not going to escape. Now look at verse 4. Okay, because I want you to understand this. In 1 Thessalonians, verses 2 and 3, he's talking to those that the thief in the night is going to come upon them unaware. Is he's referring to the people that are unsaved. He, he says they're asleep. They're asleep in the middle of the night, not ready, not watching, not awake, not expecting the coming of the Lord. They're asleep. So when he comes to them, he comes as a thief in the night. Like, what happened? You, you, you heard, the, you, you heard the, the, the window break. Somebody's breaking in. You weren't expecting it. You were ready for it. You know, call the cops. Get, get the gun. That's what it's going to be like for them. Now, is that how it's going to be for us? Because that's what the pre-trippers want you to think. We're just going to go through our day and just be like, whoa, it happened. Is that what the Bible says? Well, look at verse 4. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 4. But ye, brethren. So notice, now we're back to the brethren. For them, it's as a thief in the night, sudden destruction, the day of the Lord. He says, but ye, brethren, referring to saved people, to believers, he said, but ye, brethren, are not in darkness. He said, you're not in darkness. That, that day, what day? The day of the Lord. What day? The day of the rapture, the day that he descends, the day that the dead in Christ shall rise, the day that, that we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with him, the day of sudden destruction for them, the day of serving for us. We are not in darkness, he says, but ye, brethren, are not in darkness, that that day should overtake you as a thief. 
So the pre-tribbers, they like to make these movies, The Thief in the Night, about the rapture, how it's going to happen. He says, look, it shouldn't overtake you as a thief. It, it overtakes them as a thief because they're asleep. But ye, brethren, are not in darkness that the day should overtake you as a thief. And, you know, I preach like this and people walk out and like, I don't know what I believe about the rapture. You know, that's ridiculous. I mean, I don't understand how you can be more clear than what the Apostle Paul is teaching here. Verse 5, ye are all the children of light and the children of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep. He says, look, don't be asleep as do others. Who's the others? Unsaved people. Let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. He says, look, don't sleep, be awake. Don't sleep, stay alert. Don't sleep, be ready, be expectant. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. Verse 7, for they, here's the they again. Who are the they? The unsaved people. They that sleep, sleep in the night. And they that be drunken are drunken in the night. But let us. Now look, he's talking about end times, and he's using this philosophy, these these these. these illustrations, but let me just say this. There's a very practical application here. You know who should be drunken in the night? Unsaved people. You know who should not be drunken in the night? Saved people. For they that sleep, sleep in the night. They that are drunken are drunken in the night, but let us. We're different. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love for the helmet, uh, uh, for, for, for an helmet and hope of salvation. Verse 9 for God hath not appointed us to wrath. He says, look, the day of the Lord, the thief in the night, that's a day of sudden destruction. That's a day of wrath. But God has not appointed us to wrath. He's going to get us out of here before his, his, his wrath begins. This is a major thing that pre-tribbers do not understand. Because you'll teach this to a pre-tribber, and they're like, well, God hasn't appointed us to wrath. Like, Yeah. Well, you're saying that we're going to live through wrath because we teach that we go through the tribulation. I'm about to show that to you in Luke. Jesus taught that. But here's what Jesus is saying. The tribulation and the wrath of God are two different things. One of the major problems with the pre-tribulation rapture is that they just assume that the tribulation is the wrath of God. Well, let me help you out with that. The tribulation is the four horsemen or the six seals, and those seals are not the wrath of God. The first seal is the Antichrist. The second seal is war. The third seal is famine and pestilence. The fourth seal is persecution of believers. These are all things that the devil is doing upon this earth. After the sixth seal, after the rapture, then you've got the trumpets where God's just like sending fire and and hail and killing people. That's the wrath of God. Those are two different things. God has not appointed us to wrath. I want you to remember that because we're going to come back to that thought here in a minute. But I want you to understand this. The thief in the night is for unsaved people who are asleep. We should not be overtaken as a thief in the night. We should be watching. Let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch. That day does not have to take us as a thief. We can be ready. We can be expectant. We are awake. We should be awake. Go back to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12. I got I to gotta move quickly. 
I got a lot of material, and I, I did not want to cut this into two different parts, and I'll just let you know why. I thought about doing a part one, part two on end times prophecy. You say, ah, you should have done that. Well, yeah, whatever. <laughs> you should just show up because the Bible's being preached, okay? Yeah. <laughs> I, I have other things I want to say that I won't. I, I need to cover this t- tonight because the, the, por- the portion of Scripture we're going to carry into tonight for the Sunday night service ties perfectly into September 11th, which today, of course, is September 11th. And, uh, and, and so I didn't want to leave that for another week. I felt like the Lord took us there for a certain reason. Um, so we're going to finish this uh, today. We're going to end with this end times prophecy stuff. But look at Luke 12 and verse 41. Don't let, you know, don't let it not be said that I didn't preach on September 11th on September 11th. All right, you come back tonight. Luke 12, 41. And I'm not preaching on conspiracies, okay? Just know that. Luke 12, 41. Then Peter said unto him, Lord, speakest thou this parable unto us? Or even unto all. I want you to notice that because in order to understand the rest of this passage, you need to understand that Jesus is answering Peter's question. Peter asked this question, are you speaking, are you teaching this unto us, referring to the disciples, to those of us that are saved, or even unto all, everyone that's here? Because remember, a bunch of Pharisees and lawyers and unsaved people are there as well. So he's saying, are you saying this to saved or unsaved? And the answer is yes. Jesus makes both application in the next few verses to the saved and the unsaved. And I want you to say that because there's some misunderstandings in these next verses where people think that Jesus is teaching, you know, something that he's not because both applications are being made to the saved and the unsaved, all right? So we said, number one, we should be waiting till Jesus comes. We saw that in verses 35 to 37. We should be watching till Jesus comes. We saw that in verses 38 through 40. Number three, we should be working till Jesus comes. We'll see that in verses 41 through 48. Notice in verse 41, the question is asked. Then Peter said unto him, Lord, speakest thou this parable unto us or even to all? And the answer to that question is to all. Jesus said, I'm speaking to all. And I want you to notice, he makes two different applications to two different groups. One to the saved, one to the unsaved. The application to the saved is seen in verses 42, 43, and 44. Notice what he says. And the Lord said, who then is that faithful and wise steward whom his Lord shall make ruler over his household, to give them their portion of meat in due season. Blessed is that servant whom his Lord, when he cometh, shall find so doing. Shall find so doing what? Working. Of a truth I say unto you, that he will make him ruler over all that he hath. Now, I, I can't necessarily prove this to you, but I'll just tell you this is my opinion. My opinion is that after the rapture, I, I mean, I can prove this to you. After the rapture, there's an event called the judgment seat of Christ, in which believers are judged for the things they did in their bodies and they are rewarded. It is my opinion that the judgment seat of Christ and the marriage supper of the Lamb are the same thing. The marriage supper of the Lamb is this great celebration. We all get to eat and celebrate. But at that celebration also is when the rewards will be handed out. Right before the Lord Jesus Christ comes down, fights the battle of Armageddon, sets up his millennial reign, in which whatever rewards you received at the judgment seat of Christ, and if I'm correct, which maybe I'm not, the marriage supper of the Lamb, whatever rewards you receive will determine what you do during the millennial reign of Christ. Because the whole point of receiving rewards is that we get to rule and reign with Christ based on how we served and how faithfully we served the Lord Jesus Christ during our lives. We'll be rewarded for the things we did. 
Some will get to reign over 10 cities. Others will reign over five cities. Others will reign over one city. Some of you may be the janitor. I don't know. (laughs) If you checked your soul winning attendance, that's probably where you're headed. Luke 12, 42. And the Lord said, Who then is that faithful and wise steward? You say, I don't think, why, why do you say that? The Bible says that he that winneth souls is wise. Amen. The faithful steward is the one who faithfully serves the Lord. He said, who then is that faithful and wise steward? He said, I want to find that faithful, wise worker, steward, soul winner, whom his Lord shall make ruler over his household to give them their portion of meat in due season. Blessed is that servant whom the Lord, when he cometh, shall find so doing of a truth. I say unto you that he will make him ruler over all that he hath. By the way, let me just say this. If we are that generation that gets to live through the tribulation, that gets to live through the persecution, that gets to be alive and and remain at the day of the coming of the Lord, let me tell you something. You say, what does God want to find us doing? Does he want us find, he, he wants to find us hiding in a cave in a mountain somewhere in Montana, prepping during the tribulation. Is that what he wants to find you doing? Look, verse 43. Blessed is that servant whom the Lord, when he cometh, shall find so doing. You know what he wants to find you doing? He wants to find you working. He wants to find you soul winning. He wants to find you serving the Lord. You say, well, how are we going to survive during those times of persecution and during those times? You know what? Christians have lived through persecution throughout the ages. Safety is of the Lord. You You just serve God and do what's right. And the Lord can protect you. And if the Lord doesn't protect you, you say, what if I get killed? Then you go to heaven. Remember that teaching from Jesus? The worst thing they can do to you is kill you. Then you get this special status in heaven of being a martyr. You get a special crown. And you probably just get a default, you know, get to rule and reign with Christ for dying for the Lord Jesus Christ. You know what you, you, know what you get rewards in heaven? You get rewards in heaven for serving the Lord. You get rewards in heaven for dying for the Lord. You get rewards in heaven for, 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 for uh, suffering persecution for the Lord. You know what you don't get rewards in heaven? For hiding in a basement somewhere with your MREs. There's no rewards in heaven. I haven't seen a, a verse about that. So we'll get this idea. Like, when the tribulation happens, I'm going to go hide somewhere in the middle of nowhere. You didn't get that from the Bible. You got that from Alex Jones. You didn't get that from the Bible. The rewards are for the saved who are working. But the reckoning is for the unsaved. Notice verse 45. But and if the servants say. Now this is where people get confused because people say, oh, the servant must be a saved person. But look, the parable is just about the Lord coming to judge all the servants. Whether saved or unsaved people want to realize that they're under the authority of God. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. He will judge them for their service, whether they want to or not. So the Bible says here, and it's just a parable. They're just the servants of the Lord in this parable, but the parable is about the coming rewards and reckoning of the coming of the Lord. Verse 45. But, and if that servant say in his heart, my Lord delayeth his coming. Right? You can write this reference down as a cross-reference, 2 Peter 3, verses 3 and 4. I won't have you turn there, but in 2 Peter Peter 3, verses 3 and 4, the Bible says, There shall come in the last days scoffers, saying, Where is the promise of his coming? And where in that day? People today say, Jesus isn't coming back. 
Jesus isn't real. The Bible isn't real. Here he says, who then is that in verse 45? But and if the servant say in his heart, my Lord delayeth his coming, and shall begin to beat the men servants and maidens, and to eat and to drink and to be drunken, the Lord of that servant will come in that day when he looketh not for him. Why is he not looking for him? Because he's asleep. Because he's not saved. Because he comes as a thief in the night. The Lord of that servant will come in a day when he looketh not for him, and at an hour when he is not aware, and will cut him in sunder, and will appoint him his portion with the... You say, I think the servants were saved. Well, notice what Jesus thinks. He will appoint him a portion with the unbelievers. The servant in verse 45 is not saved. He's appointed a portion with the... He's cut asunder. He, he will cut him in sunder and will appoint him a portion with the unbelievers. You say, where's the portion of the unbelievers? Hell. Verse 47. And that servant, which knew his Lord's will, here's the unsaved person that knew, and prepared not himself, neither did according to his will, shall be beaten with many stripes. But he that knew not. So here's the unsaved person. They didn't, they didn't know and to commit things worthy of stripes shall be beaten with few stripes. For unto whomsoever much is given, of him shall be much required. And to whom men have committed much, of him they will ask the more. You say, what is this referring to? It is a reference to the fact that both heaven and hell will be divided into, label, into, into levels based off how much opportunity and how much knowledge you had. From to who, for unto whomsoever much is given, of him shall much be required. And look, here, here's the point, and you, you, can, you can like it or lump it, it doesn't matter if people, you know, you teach this to people, and they're like, I don't like that. Well, you don't get to decide what you like about God. But the Bible teaches here that hell is going to be worse for the guy who lived in Natomas and had his door knocked every year for the last 12 years and continued to reject it and reject it and reject it. Hell is going to be worse for that person than some Muslim kid who, who never had a clear presentation of the gospel prepared to him, given to him. Now, the Bible teaches that people like to come up with these, well, what about the person that's never heard? Okay, number one, that's a hypothetical that you made up. I don't know that there's anyone in this world that has not heard about the Lord Jesus Christ. But the Bible teaches that, look, no matter who you are, God reveals himself through creation and through conscience. In your mind, everybody knows there is a God. Nobody becomes an atheist without somebody in a university or college training them and brainwashing them to believe that because everybody naturally believes there is a God. God revealed himself through conscience, and therefore the Bible says that we aren't without excuse. And what I would say to those of you who like to judge God and look down upon God and say, it's not fair that you would send somebody to hell who didn't get a clear presentation of the gospel, someone in, 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 in Haiti or in Africa or in Asia, my response to you is, then you go! He's given you the ministry of reconciliation. I spent every week of my life for the last 22 years trying to reach people with the gospel because I agree with you. It's not fair. But you know the difference between you and me is I'm not lazy. I don't think it's fair that people not hear a clear presentation of the gospel and go into eternity without hearing the gospel. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to be ambassador of the Lord Jesus Christ and I'm going to bring him the gospel. I'm not going to sit there and complain and say that God is unjust. You're unjust. God has given us the ministry of reconciliation and it is our job to go out and preach the gospel to the unsaved. 
You say, why? Here's why. Because there is a day of reckoning coming. When God will judge both the saved and the unsaved. And they will be without excuse. Look at Luke 12 and verse 49. Luke 12, 49. We saw number one, the waiting. We saw number two, the watching. We saw number three, the working. I got to move quickly. Notice, lastly, this morning, number four, the withstanding. We should be withstanding till Jesus comes. Look at verse 49, Luke 12, 49. I am come to send a fire on earth, and what will, it, what will I if it, if it be already kindled? But I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how am I straightened till it be accomplished? Verse 51. Suppose ye that I am come to give peace on earth, I want you to notice that Jesus begins to teach about this concept of division. Suppose ye that I am come to give peace on earth, I tell you nay, but rather division. For from henceforth there shall be given in one house, excuse me, for from, then, from henceforth there shall be five in one house divided, three against two and two against three. Verse 53, the father shall be divided against the son, and the son against the father, the mother against the daughter, and the daughter against the mother, the mother-in-law against the daughter-in-law, the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Jesus speaks about division. I want you to understand these verses, verses 49, 50, 51, 52, 53, speak about the fact that Jesus brings division, and these verses are true in general. Out of their context, these verses are true. Oftentimes when people get saved, the Lord Jesus Christ divides them from their friends and family. Sometimes people, they get saved and they start growing in the Lord and getting discipled. They start learning, changing their lives. And they'll ask me like, what do I do about my unsaved friends, you know, because they want to go drinking still and they want to do this and that. You know, I'm not sure what to do. And I just tell people like, hey, you just live for Jesus and don't you worry about it. They'll leave you. Jesus divides. Suppose ye... He says, suppose, gee, that I came to bring peace on earth. He, say, nay, he says, nay, but rather division. Now, obviously, our goal is to try to get our unsaved uh, family and friend saved. Our goal, what you said, why are we having a family and friend day on, 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 on next week? We're having a family and friend day because we want you to reach your family and friends. Amen. We don't want you to be divided from them. We want you to, but, but you say, well, how can I be united with them? We can be united with them. The only way that human beings can be united, it's through Christ. The only way that we can have unity is through the Lord Jesus Christ. But while they refuse and reject Christ, there will be division. This is true in general. But I want you to understand that Jesus, what he's teaching is true in general. But I want you to understand this. What Jesus is teaching is also true within the context in which he is teaching and that of end times. Go to... Mark chapter 13, if you would. Mark chapter 13. Just flip back to Mark 13 real quickly. While you turn there, let me read it to you from Micah. Micah chapter 7, for those of you that are doing like the Bible study aspect, you can jot this reference down. Micah chapter 7, verses 5 and 6. Luke 12, 52 through 53, seem to be a quote, a loose quote, that the Lord Jesus Christ is giving from Micah chapter 7, verses 5 and 6. Let me read to you Micah 5. 7 and 6, excuse me, Micah 7, 5 and 6. Trust ye not a friend, put ye not confidence in a guide, keep the doors of thy mouth from her that lieth in thy bosom. He's saying, don't trust your friends, don't trust your guide. He's saying, don't even trust your wife. Now, he's saying this in the context of end times, okay? Verse 6, 
For the son dishonoreth his father, the daughter riseth up against her mother, the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. That's what Jesus seems to be quoting in Luke 12, 51 and 52. Now, what Jesus says in Luke 12, 51 and 52 is true in general. Just in general, Jesus will divide you from unbelievers. Jesus will divide you from unsaved family. The only way to have unison, unison, to have unity, is through the Lord Jesus Christ. But I want you to understand that Jesus is bringing this up within the context of the end times. You say, why? Because there is coming a day called the tribulation, and specifically the great tribulation, when believers will be persecuted. And on that day, your family will turn on you. When they take the mark of the beast, and you don't, they will turn on you. So that's why Jesus quotes Micah when he says, Trust ye not in a friend. Put ye not confidence in a guide. Keep the doors of thy mouth from her that lieth in thy bosom. He says, Be careful, for the son dishonoreth the father. The daughter riseth up against her mother. The daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the man of his own house. I want you to notice the context of this in Mark 13. Mark 13 is a passage about end times prophecy. Notice what he says, verse 12. Mark 13, verse 12. We're almost done, all right? Mark 13, 12. Now the brother shall betray the brother to death. This is reference to end times tribulation, great tribulation period. Now the brother shall betray the brother to death, the father the son, the children shall rise up against their parents and shall cause them to be put to death, and he shall be hated of all men for my name's sake, but he that endure, uh, endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. Now people like to take this little phrase, but he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved, and try to turn it into physical salvation, you've got to endure to the end to be saved, excuse me, spiritual salvation in order to go to heaven. That is not the context. The context is about if you endure unto the end, you'll be saved physically from the persecution of the tribulation period. Because people are going to betray us and ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake. This is what Paul said in Acts 14, 22. You don't have to turn there. He said, confirming the souls of the disciples and exhorting them to continue in the faith and that we must through much tribulation enter into the kingdom of God. Go back to Luke chapter 12. Let's just finish this real quickly, verses 54 through 59. We'll, we'll be done in, I don't know, a couple minutes. Jesus wraps up all this teaching about end times, he, and, and he gave us a lot. And I moved through it quickly, and I apologize for that, but we just got to get through this material. He ends this teaching with two thoughts. The first thought, just by way of conclusion, is this. We should discern the times. Notice what he says in verse 54. And he said also to the people, when you see a cloud rise out of the west, straightway you say, there cometh a shower, and so it is. And when you see the south wind blow, you say, there will be heat, and it cometh to pass. Ye hypocrites, ye can discern the face of the sky and of the earth, but how is it that ye do not discern this time? Now I want you to notice that in another passage, when Jesus is saying similar things, he says, how is it you do not discern the signs of the times. And the idea is that we should discern. If we, can, if we can look at the weather and make predictions about the weather, we should be able to look at the fact that our world is headed towards a one-world government, a one-world religion. The fact that Bible preaching is being outlawed, it's being censored, it's not allowed on mainstream social media platforms. We should be able to discern the time that we're getting closer to the end. In other passages, it says, 
the signs of the times. Here he's, he's looking at them and saying, how is it that you do not discern this time? Because he's telling them, not only in the end times will they not discern the second coming, but he's looking at those Pharisees and lawyers and scribes that he's speaking to, and he says, you are not discerning the first coming. This time. You're going to crucify me and not realize that I am the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one that was to come. So then Jesus says, you should discern the times, and then he ends with saying, you should get ready for judgment. Look at verse 57. Yea, and why even of yourselves judge ye not what is right? Then he gives again another little parable here. And I don't believe this parable is just given out of context, just kind of thrown in there for no reason. I think there's an application that Jesus is trying to give us. Verse 58, when thou goest with thine adversary to the magistrate. What is a magistrate? It is a civil officer, a judge. Someone who's going to uh, uh, a government position that's going to give formal judgment. He says, when thou goes with thine adversary, adversary is your enemy, the person that's, that's fighting against you, your person suing you or taking you to court. When thou goes with thine adversary to the magistrate, as thou art in the way, he says, before you get to the judgment, as you're heading towards judgment, he says, give diligence that thou mayest be delivered from him, lest he hail thee to the judge, and the judge deliver thee to the officer, and the officer cast thee into prison. These are all terms of legality, judges, cops, prisons, officers, these things. He says, look, if you can see that you're heading towards judgment, while you're on your way there, he says, give diligence that thou mayest be delivered from him, unless he hail thee to the judge, and the judge delivered thee to the officer, and the officer cast thee into prison, verse 59, I tell thee that thou shalt not depart thence till thou hast paid the very last mite. Here's what he's saying. He said, if you're on your way to court, and you can settle before you get to court, he says, settle the thing, because it might not go well for you. It might not bode well for you in court. And if the judge judges against you, he says, I tell thee thou shalt not depart thence till thou hast paid the very last mite. You say, is Jesus just giving us legal advice just out of nowhere here? No, he's ending his sermon where he started. Remember where he started? The ten virgins who were not ready. They didn't have the oil in their lamps. Here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, look, you should be able to discern the fact that your life is heading, your life is heading towards a day of judgment. And you might want to get ready before you get there. Because when you get there and you're not ready, the judge might judge against you. Oh, I'm trusting in my works. It might not go well for you. And I tell thee that thou shalt not depart then, so thou hast paid the very last mite. So he says, get ready for judgment. And as it is appointed unto men, once to die, but after this the judgment. Be ready. Say, so are you saying this, like Peter, to the saved or the unsaved? He said, I'm saying it to both. Your day, your life will end with a day of judgment. So if you're not saved... If you're here and you say, I don't know if I die today, if I go to heaven, I'm not sure. Don't go to that great white throne not ready. Get the oil in your lamps. And if you say, I'm saved, well, then you prepare for that marriage supper of the Lamb. You prepare for that great white, uh, for that judgment seat of Christ. You begin to serve the Lord. Make sure he finds you watching and working and waiting and withstanding so that you can rule and reign with him. In the millennial reign of Christ, bow our heads and have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we love you, Lord. Thank you for this passage. I know there's a lot to go through, a lot of material to cover in a short amount of time. I pray, Lord, that you'd help us to learn it and apply it to our lives wherever it needs to apply, be applied. In the matchless name of Christ, we pray. Amen.
We're going to have Brother Matt come up and lead us in a final song. I just want to remind you a, a couple of things. Uh, first of all, don't forget that this coming Sunday is 